Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Introducing the SD Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard podcast, episode 20. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, we got a lot to cover in today's podcast. The AFC-NFC Championship games, who's going to be going to the Super Bowl? We'll give our projections on that game as well. And also, the MLB Hall of Fame is going to be announced next week. 33 names on the ballot. We'll go through a lot of those players, the 14 returning names, who we think will get into the Hall of Fame this year. So it's going to be a fun conversation as well. The Pittsburgh Pirates have had a very active trade week. But we also got to 20, so we continue on. And we're going to start with the Jacksonville Jaguars. They beat the Pittsburgh Steelers 45-42 last week in the divisional playoffs. And the Steelers, they allow 38 points on defense. We heard Le'Veon Bell talking earlier in the week, before the game even happens, a couple days before, about retiring instead of taking a franchise tag because he wants to get paid. After the game, they fire the offensive coordinator, Todd Haley. Ben Rotsberg is talking about how he's not able to do QB sneaks. But should another conversation be occurring with the Pittsburgh Steelers? Jose, is it time to consider firing Mike Tomlin? No, I mean, and I really don't think so. I think this is coming from, uh, you know, this whole debacle is really coming from, it's a missed opportunity, and a lot of people are upset right here. Obviously, again, when I said in the last podcast episode, that when the year started, probably 99% of the people thought it was going to be Patriots-Steelers again in the AFC Championship game, right? Because those are the two top-heavy teams. Those are the two favorite teams um, to win on the AFC side every single year because those are the two most dominant teams. So now if you're a Steelers fan, you're, yes, you were expecting some competition with the Jaguars, but you were also expecting the Steelers to come out on top and go on to face the Patriots. And when things don't go according to plan, yeah, things start to fall apart a little bit. The whole Le'Veon Bell situation... Although I understand where Bell is coming from, the guy should get paid. The guy does so much for the Steelers. A huge part of their offense, he does deserve to get paid. That I would have wished. I wish he would have waited um, maybe till like the season's over to talk about that kind of stuff. I feel like to throw that distraction out there just made it 10 times worse. It was almost like the boat incident with Odell Beckham and the New York Giants, right? You, throw, you do something stupid early in the week, and then when you lose, it kind of over magnifies what you said or did early to it right so now that the, now that the Steelers actually lost now we're going to over magnify the fact that Bell was talking about his contract earlier in the week and what's going to go on with that is he coming back to Pittsburgh all this other stuff they fired the offensive coordinator 
Ben Roethlisberger doesn't look his best in the game. Again, I think the Ben Roethlisberger performance, he was, very, he was facing a very tough, tough Jaguars defense. We all know how good Jacksonville is on defense. Not many QBs can survive. I mean, Roethlisberger did the best that he could. I mean, he put up 42 points with the offense as well, too. So you can't. the blame is not all on Roethlisberger. Um, the Steelers did make a lot of questionable coaching calls in this game. I think that's why you saw the offensive coordinator get fired. Um, but is it time to fire Mike Tomlin? For me, no. Um, to me, Mike Tomlin is still a good coach. Even if he gets fired, I think he can, he can find another job easily. In the NFL, he's one of the more respected head coaches. Yes, I know his track record is very iffy. And, you know, he really can't get past the Patriots sometimes when it's all said and done. Maybe that's the deciding factor. But I do think that firing the offensive coordinator is a warning shot to Mike Tomlin and the rest of his staff saying, hey, we're not afraid to make a change if we need to. We didn't look our best. Warning shot, we're firing the offensive coordinator. But if we don't get our act together and get back to the winning culture that the Steelers are used to, Mike Tomlin might find his head on the chopping block next season. Winning culture. The, the thing with me, though, is the Steelers really haven't been on a winning culture. They've been great in the regular season for these last 10 years or so. But that's what's expected when we're talking about a Super Bowl QB. And there's only been four quarterbacks in the AFC to get to the Super Bowl since, what, 2000 or so? Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, and Joe Flacco once. That's all the Super Bowl quarterbacks from the AFC. It's not been a very challenging road for the Steelers. And when I say that, I mean, ever. It's not like they're running into Tom Brady every single year. They're getting eliminated by Jacksonville one year, by Tim Tebow and the Denver Broncos another year. They're, they're barely beating any of the good teams. You look at some of their wins. Uh, the Miami Dolphins, the Cincinnati Bengals, and that was without Andy Dalton. Uh, they beat the New York Jets one year to get to the Super Bowl. And when they verse Super Bowl quarterbacks, I think uh, Mike Tomlin is 3-4 and four against Super Bowl quarterbacks with two of those wins coming against Joe Flacco. So they don't, they don't stand out as in, impressive in that sense. And not to take anything away from the Steelers on this one, but we look at the Steelers now and we think offense. Ben Roethlisberger. Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell. We're talking about possibly the best running back in football and the best wide receiver in football. You, you think offense when you think Pittsburgh. But that's not always the case. This is really a defensive team. This is a defensive head coach. This is a defensive franchise. This is a defensive division. And that's been the way it's been for forever when it comes to Pittsburgh. And when it comes to this division. So we're not seeing it, the defense. And we're not seeing Mike Tomlin have great numbers against Tom Brady or Super Bowl quarterbacks. So I, I do think there's a need for a change. And it's not just Todd Haley, the offensive coordinator. I, I, I agree that's almost like sending a warning. But I think it's, it's almost sending also a scapegoat. Because Ben Roethlisberger is saying that he's had issues with Todd Haley. Okay, but as a coach, you're supposed to intervene in those situations. And as much as you're supposed to go with your offensive coordinator, you're also supposed to figure out what the best plays are going to be in these scenarios. There's, 
there's not a lot of reasons that for me to say that Mike Tomlin should still be the Steelers coach. Because I, I think if you put a lot of different coaches in these scenarios, it's not the same like a Jeff Fisher. Where it's like, oh, there's it, it's extreme disparity in success. No, I still think you're going to see plenty of success, whether it's Mike Tomlin or a different head coach at this point. And I think the Steelers could consider a, a going an offensive change, going with an offensive coordinator. If this team is not going to be the defensive team that it's been forever known as, there's got to be changes because they're not getting it done in the postseason at the end of the day. They're not getting it done in the playoffs. And to me, the, the route is going with a different coach in that scenario. The Patriots beat the Titans 35-14. to 14. I mean, we're not going to get into a lot of that shellacking that the Patriots did. Uh, but one thing that's come up when it comes to the Patriots this week is Brady's throwing hand seems to be bothering him. Test came up negative. But, Jose, are you concerned about the injury? Um, you know, first things first, I mean, to describe the uh... – the, the brutal mauling of the uh, Patriots against the Titans. If you ever see that scenario, that scene from Star Wars where young Anakin Skywalker just runs through the village and kills all those people, that was basically a complete recap of how the Titans and, uh, and Patriots planned out. Um, but no, uh, the injury is a little bit concerning, but I'm really not concerned at all because at the end of the day, Tom Brady's still going to be there. Um, and guys like Tom Brady always find a way to win. They're not going to pin, if they do lose, they're not going to pin it on a hand injury. It's not going to be an excuse for him. Uh, we heard the offensive coordinator for the Jaguars joke around saying, I'm pretty sure he could throw left-handed if he wanted to. And I'm not too shocked. I wouldn't be too shocked either if Brady is possible to throw left-handed. He could probably throw with his feet if he wanted to. I think we, Tom Brady is very punt, godlike. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Tom Brady can really do anything. And if you don't think Tom Brady's going to go out there on Sunday or Saturday, whenever they play, if you don't think he's going to go out there and, and play just like the old Tom Brady, I think you're crazy. Will it have a? Will it have an impact on him? Probably. You know, you probably won't you probably won't be seeing a lot of long passes, maybe a lot of short passes. Um, so and I think Gronkowski is going to be a big tool in this one, especially if Jalen Ramsey is going to be on Brandon Cooks. Um, I think Gronkowski in the tight end position is going to serve beautifully, especially if his hand is in pain and he doesn't have to complete too many long passes. Uh, hopefully he can hand off the ball a little bit more to his running backs. Um, but I don't see it being a giant issue that fans need to be worried, that needs to be worried about. Cause at the end of the day, Tom Brady's going to show up to play. Yeah, I don't think this is one of those scenarios where if you're if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars, you're saying target this injury. No, you're just saying target Tom Brady at the end of the day. When Tom Brady doesn't have success, it's because he's under pressure constantly. And I think that's really the same game plan. Uh, a certain injury I don't think will make a difference when it comes to Tom Brady. Uh, he's going to be the best football player on the field that day. So for the Jaguars, it's just going to be make his day hectic, get to him, put constant pressure on him. And for me, as long as the injury is negative and he's able to throw a football, it's going to be fine at the end of the day. Um, Jose, it is the Jaguars, and it is Blake Bortles under center for the quarterback. Uh, but should it, it seems like not enough people are giving the Jaguars credit. I think like right now we're looking at a spread that's like nine and a half, ten points for the Patriots to win. And this is a Jaguars team that's relatively had the best defense all season long. And Bortles has been good when he doesn't turn over the football. Should we be getting 
the Jaguars more credit going into this game. Yeah, I mean, and I'm one of those people that, you know, didn't wasn't really high on the Jaguars. I mean, we both know I'm not high on Blake Bortles. Um, <laughs> but but honestly, the Jaguars have proven a lot. And I think the reason why they're not getting enough credit is because look at the past couple of games they face. You know, the, um, the AFC South, obviously the Colts were never in it this year. The Texans really fell off when Deshaun Watson got hurt. The Titans hit a little bit of an injury bug. Mariota was hurt a little bit late in the year. So a lot of people felt like maybe that division itself was gifted um, to the Jaguars to win. Okay, then they faced the Bills in the first round. Obviously, the Bills weren't a strong playoff team. And you know, realistically, no one saw the Bills getting past the first round of the playoffs. Understandable. But you got to understand, what, they won that game, what, 10-3, 13-3 against the Buffalo Bills? I mean, that's hard to do. It's hard to hold a team to three points, especially in this in these days in the NFL. Offense comes out of left field out of nowhere sometimes. It's so easy to run a touchdown in or get a pass off for a touchdown, a lucky break, a long run, wide receivers in the end zone. This defense held an offense to just three points. And again, I don't care how crappy your offense is. You should at least be able to score a touchdown in at least every single game. And that defense did not let it happen. Now, you look at the game against the Steelers. It was a wild ride, right? The offense goes off. They score 21 unanswered points before the before the Steelers decide to answer back. And then nothing. the defense, yeah, it was 21 nothing. And then the Steelers answer back. And I understand that the defense for the Jaguars gave up 42 points. Like, remember, the Jaguars won 45-42, right? So this is the league's best defense in my eyes, but they still gave up 42 points. So that opens a lot of eyes for people saying, well, are they the best defense when you give up 42 points? That, to me, doesn't bother me, though, because I'm not going to measure a defense based on how many points they gave up. I'd rather measure the defense on how do you do in crunch time. When you need to stop, do you come up with a stop? And I think Jacksonville does that. And I think, so I just think Jacksonville, you know, they're a team where they faced, you know, they had a weak division. There's no doubt about that, that the AFC South wasn't the strongest division in football. They had a very weak opponent in the first round of the playoffs, but they still held them to three points. They faced a Steelers team that didn't look like they were all there. It looked like they were focused on the Patriots. It looked like they were focused on heading to Foxborough and not worried about the Jaguars. And then you have a guy like Blake Bortles go off looking like Peyton Manning last week. Like, who is that guy in the, in the Blake Bortles mask? And I think it's, I think a lot of people, it's not that they're not giving credit to the Jaguars. I think a lot of people like myself are confused about the Jacksonville Jaguars because this is a team that all year long that we all know they're a defensive team, right? Their defense is going to help them win ball games. Blake Bortles just has to not worry about turning over the ball, give the ball to Leonard Fournette, if you're Blake Bortles, pass the ball at least 15 to 20 times a game, but focus on running the football. Don't turn the ball over. So, and you know, and now we're seeing a totally different team in the playoffs, right? We're seeing Blake Bortles find some confidence. He's going off. Leonard Fournette is looking good in the backfield. The offense, in general, looks like it's coming alive, paired with this great defense. So I think it's just a lot of people just don't know what to expect out of the Jaguars because you picked the Jaguars to win, Nick, but a lot of people didn't pick the Jaguars to even stand a chance against the Steelers, against the Bills. Sure. Against the Steelers, no. And like you said, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are not picking them to face the Patriots. But like myself, in the back of my mind, there is a chance. And I just think people, not that they don't want to pick the Jaguars, it's just that we don't know which Jaguars team is going to show up. Is the Jaguars team going to show up with great defense and a crappy Blake Bortles? He's going to throw the ball and have it intercepted twice? Or is it going to be this great defense plus an offense that looks confident as hell after these last two weeks of playoff football? I, I think this is going to be... If you had to pick the the two games, the Eagles, Vikings, or the Patriots, Jaguars, I'm taking the Patriots, Jaguars as to be the better game of the week between these two. I I think this is going to be a very good game, and this is 
this is a Jaguars team that you can't count out. We're talking about the number one defense in football. We're talking about a team that, like you said, 21 to nothing they led. And, and not only that, but yes, the Steelers are coming back. The Steelers are rolling with offense. Ben Rotsberger's throwing touchdown passes constantly. And this Jaguar team is matching the Steelers point for point, touchdown for touchdown, as we get further into the second half, as we get close, as we get into the fourth quarter. They're just matching them with points. And obviously the Jaguars offense is not going to impress you, but against the Steelers defense on the road, they're still getting it done. They're still getting every first down they need to get. Blake Bortles is either passing or running it. He's getting the job done. The offense got it done constantly. This is a good enough team. This is, if you had to tell me out of the two, and yes, Jacksonville beat the Steelers, but I would have said Jacksonville's got a better chance to beat the New England Patriots than the Steelers do of beating the New England Patriots. Last week, before these two teams even faced each other, of Jacksonville and Pittsburgh, so I definitely think the uh, Jaguars have a chance. I definitely think that spreads a tad bit too high when you're giving a, a two-possession lead on a, the best defense in the NFL. It just doesn't really seem right for me. Um, and this is where it almost becomes the next question. Because 538, uh, one of those ESPN-like websites, posted that the Patriots have the easiest run to the Super Bowl in NFL history this year because they're the number one seed and because they versed the Tennessee Titans and now the Jacksonville Jaguars and they'll either face Nick Foles and the Philadelphia Eagles or Case Keenum and the Minnesota Vikings. So, Jose, do you agree with that, that the Patriots will have, assuming they beat the Jaguars and whoever they play next, it's the easiest run to the Super Bowl ever? Well, for me on that statement, I'm a little bit 50-50 because statistically – yeah, probably this is the easiest, right? Because the AFC East is atrocious. The Patriots won that division before it even started. They already won next year's division, too, and we haven't even started the 2019 season of football, right? Um, you could already give the AFC East title to the Patriots next year. Um, so statistically, yeah, this is probably the easiest, right? Because you knew the Patriots were going to win the division. You knew the Patriots were going to beat the Titans. And then on paper, again, you have a Jaguars team that's great in defense, but this offense is known to show a little bit of inconsistency at times with Blake Bortles at the QB position. You know, it's not the strongest offense in the world. The Patriots do have a better offense than the Jaguars on paper. And then, of course, Nick Foles, the backup, not a good option for the Eagles. Case Keenum, a career backup, although he's not playing like it right now. You know, statistically, Case Keenum's numbers don't match up to the Patriots. So statistically and on paper, yeah, this is the easiest. But if you're watching it and you're actually watching these games, I think the answer is no. I mean, yes, they had an easy time winning the AFC East. Yes, they mauled the Titans. But I don't think you know this game against the Jaguars is going to be a walk in the park. This is a really great defense. They're going to put pressure on Tom Brady. Tom Brady's not going to be able to throw to Brandon Cooks as often as he wants to because Jalen Ramsey's probably going to be on him. I do question how the Jaguars are going to try and cover Gronkowski, but that's one of my X factors for that game. Um, but that could be a you know different discussion that we're having. But I do think that this Jaguars game is going to be close, so it's not going to be easy. And then move on to the Super Bowl. If they face the Eagles, you're looking at another team that still has a decent enough defense to do damage to Tom Brady. Yes, they don't have their number one QB in there. Yes, it's their backup. 
But it's not exactly a walk in the park either if you face the Eagles. And again, if you face Minnesota, it's another great defense with a QB that's red hot right now. I understand Case Keenum is a bona fide backup. Anywhere else Case Keenum goes, he's probably not a starting QB. I know he's only starting because Sam Bradford and Teddy Bridgewater is in no playing shape to begin with. But Case Keenum is as hot as hot can be right now. And you don't want to face teams like that that are that on fire like the Vikings. So on paper, yes, it's the easiest road to the Super Bowl. But if you're actually watching these games at face value and you're watching these teams play, I don't think it is easy at all. I I don't view it as the easiest schedule. Uh, you could tell me it's the easiest quarterback scenario that the Patriots have faced, and maybe you'll have me agree with you there because you faced Marcus Mariota, who I, I think will progress into a better quarterback. He's slowly getting there. Uh, Blake Bortles, obviously, I'm a little bit higher on him than most people are, but I'm not... I'm not off the realistic train. It's Blake Bortles at the end of the day. And then, like you said, we're talking about Nick Foles, who's a backup to Charleston Wentz, which if it is Wentz he's playing, then okay, we're looking at possibly the NFL MVP this season. And Case Keenum, again, you mentioned it. He's a third-string quarterback. He's not playing like a third-string quarterback, but he is. So if you're taking it just on quarterback standards, yes, it could be the easiest Super Bowl run. But when you take it on team value, no. The Jaguars are the best defense in football. And if they are second best, it's second best to the Minnesota Vikings, who have two of the best NFL leading receivers throughout most of the regular season in Dids and Thielen, who have one of the best defenses, who have an amazing special teams, who have been able to run the ball successfully, even without Cook, the entire season. And even you take the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes, they don't cross and Wentz, but they kept the Atlanta Falcons to 10 points last week. And they kicked five field goals. And obviously they got a lot of luck on their side throughout that game, but you're still talking about holding... Matt Ryan to 210 passing yards, sacking him three times. Leo Jones, I mean, they tried to keep him in check, but they kept the rest of the team in check other than Julio Jones. Devontae Freeman ran it for seven yards. That's all he got in the game. Coleman got plenty, 10 for rushes, 79 yards, but we're talking about holding the running game, holding the star running back of a team. So defensively, the Eagles are good. And, and offensively, you know, I, I do like the Eagles. And we've seen Nick Foles' numbers when he plays with an offensive head coach. And, it, and he plays without Jeff Fisher on his team. And the Minnesota Vikings, if you just did the blind test for a moment, don't look at last week's game in that fourth quarter of fun, but this is a Vikings team that everyone forgets led 17-0 at half. It was 17-7 until a minute left to go in that third quarter. This team literally led 17-0 for 43 minutes of a football game. Against two, Drew Brees, Alvin Kamara, Mark Ingram, and the New Orleans Saints offense that we've been considering the, what one of the best QB offensively, and this season offensively, the Saints have been pure dominant? No, the, the Patriots are going to run into 
two of the best defenses, no matter who they place. Because they're facing Jacksonville, and if you take the Eagles or the Vikings, it's two phenomenal defenses. And it's two teams that held offensive teams in check. Obviously, the fourth quarter spoke different numbers, but again, you look at it, Case Keenum played great in that fourth quarter. Their special teams did phenomenal as well. You store them go punch for punch with those last three minutes of a football game with the Minnesota, uh, with the New Orleans Saints. So I, I'm, I'm not going to say that this is the easiest route because it is the easiest QB route, but there are still phenomenal teams between these two teams' defenses, especially the Eagles, Vikings, and Jaguars. We're looking at three of the best defenses in the NFL, and the Vikings and Jaguars, in my mind, are the top two. So, no, I don't agree with the idea that this is the easiest route for the Patriots in the Super Bowl. But, Jose, for the big question on the AFC, who do you have going to the Super Bowl? Well, uh, this is actually a lot harder than you think because, I mean, the Jaguars really showed me something when they took on the Steelers. I'm not saying that Blake Bortles, uh, I'm fully believing in him now, but I always said that as much as I like to make fun of Blake Bortles, I do think he is a decent quarterback. Why? Because he doesn't need to be great on a team like the Jaguars. On a team like the Jaguars, they play with great defense and they have a great run game in Leonard Fournette. And even when Chris Ivory is healthy, Ivory is a good backup to Leonard Fournette, which means a guy like Bortles doesn't have to throw the ball 30 to 35 times a game. He only has to throw it 10, 15, 20 passes, complete at least half of them, you know, and, and throw for 100 or 200 yards and hand the ball off to Fournette as, as much as possible. And I think Bortles maybe is finally realizing that. And I do think that Leonard Fournette being on the Jaguars now takes a crap load of, uh, of pressure off Bortles' shoulders because he doesn't have to feel like he has to do it alone by himself anymore, knowing that he has a good teammate behind him to back him up, so to speak. And also, you've seen it all week long with a lot of, um, I know this is kind of off topic, but all week long, um, all his teammates saying, well, you know, Bortles is our brother, we support him, we think he's a great QB. I got to say, I love to see that, especially with all the criticism that Bortles does face, including from myself, for not being a good quarterback. But nonetheless, the Jaguars really did show me something. This is a strong team on defense. And you know what, Nick? There's a phrase that says defense win championships. And there's a reason why that phrase exists. And a game like the Steelers is why that phrase exists. And, you know, I look at the, I look at the Jaguars, and I look at the Patriots, and I say, this is going to be a close game, all right? And Tom Brady does not do well, like most quarterbacks, when he's severely under pressure. And the Jaguars are a team that can do that. They can put the pressure on Brady. Remember, these receivers that the Patriots have, not all of them are exactly that talented, right? Brady's the one who really makes his receivers. I think we can both agree on that. When you have Jalen Ramsey locking down Brandon Cooks, if the Jaguars can find a way to at least stop Gronkowski from having a huge game, maybe allow Gronkowski to put up at least half of the stats that he usually pulls up, the Jaguars are going to have a chance to win this game. And the Patriots' defense isn't exactly elite either. So the Jaguars definitely have a chance to do what they did against the Steelers to the Patriots. So I'm not saying Bortles is going to go off again and throw seven touchdowns, but Bortles might have a chance to move the ball up the field against the Patriots' defense that hasn't looked like the good defense that it was last year or the year before. Patriots' defense is good this year, not great. So I think Jaguars do have a chance to win this game. However, I haven't been picking the Jaguars at all, and they've been doing great. So I want to see the Jaguars win. So therefore, using reverse psychology, I'm choosing the Patriots because also I never could really get bet against Tom Brady until I see it be done. Um, so I'm picking the Patriots, even though I expect it to be a very close game. Wouldn't surprise me if the Jaguars win, but I do have the Patriots winning this game. 
if it's not the Patriots, I have a better chance of taking the Jaguars. I, I like you. It's so tough to take to pitch against Tom Brady, to pitch against Bill Belichick, and I think that's going to be the real difference maker. I, I, I don't think it's going to be Tom Brady. I think it's the guy on the sidelines, Bill Belichick, because at the end of the day, he's going to outcoach whoever he faces. And that's what I'm really looking at. Because if Bortles and the Jaguars, they're going to need to play pretty much perfect on Sunday. Bortles cannot turn the football over. When he doesn't, turn the, when he doesn't throw an interception... The Jaguars are undefeated this season, including the playoffs. He did not throw an interception either one of the two postseason games, and I think in seven regular season games, he's he's nine or ten and zero this year when he does not throw an interception. But here's the issue: the Patriots played phenomenal on defense last week against Tennessee Titans. Uh, yes, we talked about the thirty-five to fourteen, but what we don't talk about is Marcus Mariota got sacked eight times in that game. Yeah, the Tennessee Titans didn't turn the football over, but he got hit a ton. And that's all you need to do. Because if you're going to put pressure on Blake Bortles, and you're going to get to him, and you're going to sack him, obviously he's not going to be able to run the football. He's certainly going to try. And a QB like Blake Bortles, under pressure... And getting sacked is a QB I 100% believe is going to make mistakes. So this is a game where I could see Blake Bortles throwing an interception or two. Trying to do too much because he's under pressure way too much in this game. We're, we're talking about the offense and defense of the Patriots and Jaguars. And I think that's going to be close. And I think that's the reason this game is going to stay close because of the Jaguars defense. And this game is going to rely heavily on that defense and heavily on Leonard Fournette. But I don't think we give the Patriots defense enough credit. And I don't think uh, in a scenario like this, the Jaguars are going to be able to stay in the same game coaching when it comes to Bill Belichick. I I like you. If I'm going to bet this game, I'm betting the Jaguars at 7.5. And, and if you told me the Jaguars are going to beat the Patriots, I wouldn't be totally surprised because the Patriots, again, we're talking about a 40-year-old Tom Brady who was slow in the regular season. He looked phenomenal in the postseason again. A great part of that is because he had that extra week off. He's also got you know plenty of time of rest because of that week, so I don't think that's going to be a problem. But it, it's, it's so hard to pick against the Patriots, and I want to say Jaguars. And I want to say Blake Bortles, but it's impossible to do so when it's Tom Brady and Bill Pelichick, and I have no reason to not pit the Patriots to go to the Super Bowl again. So I'm going to stick with the Patriots. They've been the team that I've picked all year to make it to the Super Bowl, and I think that's pretty much the consensus by everybody. It's always take the Patriots to get to the Super Bowl. There shouldn't be any real surprise. Uh, It's going to be really... Uh, if the Jaguars get to the Super Bowl, it's because of how many mistakes the Patriots made and they weren't able to get themselves back in the game and recover from it. So we both have the Patriots going to the Super Bowl, but we both think this is going to be a very close game, and I, I'm certainly looking forward to this game, uh, especially because if Blake Bortles is able to pick up this win against Tom Brady, 
I think it's going to change a lot of how he's viewed in Jacksonville and how you consider going a different route than Blake Bortles next year. And maybe people start viewing Blake Bortles better. But right now we got the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And let's talk about the NFC game. The Eagles beat the Falcons 15-10, to really keeping the Falcons' offense in check, kicking five field goals in that game with the Eagles. While the Vikings beat the Saints 29 29- 24. And, Jose, let's start with the Vikings and Saints game. Uh, the last play of the game. The pass to Stefan Dids, where he runs it in for the touchdown. And the game expires at that point. Was that, in your mind, the greatest last-second play in NFL history? Well, I don't know if it was the greatest, but it's definitely up there as one of the best. It's, it's definitely in the top five. I mean, you're talking about a game where they're running out of time, you know, all the Saints needed to do was make a tackle, you know, force the Vikings to go for a field goal. Maybe they tie up the game. Maybe they don't. Um, you know, and, and then Stefan Diggs comes out of that with a phenomenal catch and then just no one behind him. Poor defense, by the way, for that cornerback uh, for the New Orleans Saints. Don't know why he was trying to make a tackle before the ball even got there. Um, you're also risking pass interference at that point, too. But nonetheless, I mean, it, it was a phenomenal play uh, from a team that can do no wrong right now. And it, I don't know if it was the best um, last last second play, but it's definitely in my top five. It, it's so hard with the NFL because it's it's a game winner. It, it's and we don't see that often in the NFL. We we see that in baseball with walkoffs. We see that in the NBA, plenty in game winning shots, um, and in the NFL occasionally. Occasionally, we see it on the last second field goals, but no time left. We usually see a hail mary, a throw to that a throw to the end zone, and if you're not Aaron Rodgers, it doesn't really turn out successful. To me, it was because there there are game winning drives and, and the greatest last second plays we're talking about. We're taught the time expires to result in this play, and it's it's hard to think of many games that were like this. Uh, and to get your team into the NFC Conference Championship uh, on a play that, like you said, if he just waits for him to land and just holds him, he's going to be tackled in bounds still, and the game's going to end. He's trying to make a tackle where he doesn't get out of bounds. But it's hard to pick a game. It's hard to pick a moment where it's going to be more memorable than that right now. And I think the only way that it doesn't have that last impression is if they don't win this week or if they don't win the Super Bowl. And then it's like, okay, we can almost forget about those type of moments because it didn't finish with a championship. And I think this could be one of those scenarios where we remember the David Tyree catch, and not because we're in New York alone, but because it's – it's the play that also helped the Giants win the Super Bowl. Or the Mario Manningham catch, we remember because it helped the Giants win the Super Bowl. And those, those plays get remembered. Just like uh, Julian Edelman last season. We, we should be remembering Julio Jones' catch, which was just equally as impressive from last year's Super Bowl. But we're not going to think of that play because it didn't result in the win. So I, I think this is going to be one of those where if the Vikings continue to win, 
and win the Super Bowl, maybe we do consider this one of the greatest plays of all time because of the fact that it comes out with the championship. But for right now, I think it's one of the greatest, one of the greatest last-second finishes in a game in NFL history. Uh, obviously, I think for the big surprise for us was the Eagles beating the Falcons. Uh, that came a little bit out of nowhere, and a lot of it was because the Falcons basically couldn't stand at times. Julio Jones fell on the last play of the game. Yeah, defensive player for the Falcons fall, and that results in Ertz making the catch and running it down field 20-plus yards, resulting in a field goal, and even at before halftime. The Falcons should have had an interception and bounced off the cornerback leg, so a lot of a lot of mistakes by the Falcons. It seems like we're always talking about that when it comes to the playoffs. Uh, resulting in the Eagles' win to get to the NFC Championship game, but staying with the Vikings for one more moment, uh, if the Vikings were to beat the Eagles and the Vikings go to the Super Bowl, the NFC is considered the road team in this Super Bowl, but the Vikings would be hosting the Super Bowl in their stadium, and it becomes almost a mind game scenario that if you're the AFC team, if either the Jaguars or the Patriots, and you're playing the Vikings, are, are you going to request the home locker room to put the Vikings in that road and visiting locker room just so to throw off rhythm on the Vikings? I mean, they could. I don't think it's going to have the biggest effect in the world. Uh, at the end of the day, I think the locker room is just a place to get change and stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's going to be too big of an issue. I wouldn't anticipate it, honestly. I, I, I mean, I don't know if it would be a big issue, but you know that if the New England Patriots play the Minnesota Vikings, Bill Belichick is certainly doing that. There, there, there's no doubt in my mind Bill Belichick would not do anything in his power to try and throw off a little bit of a rhythm when it comes to another team. So I, I certainly see that as happening, whether you're the Jaguars or the Patriots, because I, I think it's the right thing to do. You, you want to make them feel like a road team. You want to make them feel a little less comfortable in their home stadium. And it's we hear it often when it comes to like pitchers in baseball. I, I think I think it would more affect a pitcher that because it throws them off their starting rhythm. But you could almost get the same thing from a a football team on just. Just the smallest things. If it's able to affect the team a little bit, go for it at that point. So there's no doubt in my mind the Patriots would do it. And I think both the AFC teams will easily consider it and go for it if the Vikings make it to the Super Bowl. And with that, Jose, who do you have going to the Super Bowl representing the NFC team? Well, I mean, for the longest time, I would have said the Eagles. But the Carson Wentz injury really does put a damper in that. Um, give credit to Philadelphia Eagles. They did beat the Atlanta Falcons. Um, you know, I, I think they still have a great defensive team in the Eagles. I still like their running game ever since the JAJE trade. I think that really solidified um, their run game, especially with Darren Sproles going down. They needed that extra help um, in the run game because this is a team that likes to run and pass the ball. They're capable of doing both. Um, Nick Foles is still a good QB. I'll still stand by that. He's still a starter on a lot of other teams. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's, you, you probably weren't expecting to even see the field this year when you're behind a guy like Carson Wentz. You're not expecting Carson Wentz to go down with an ACL, MCL tear. So that's very hard for Nick Foles just to step in and, of all things, be in the middle of a championship run saying, OK, take over for the MVP of the league and win the Super Bowl. That's not exactly the most favorable scenario for a lot of guys out there. So 
give credit to the Eagles and what they've done. And on the flip side, you have a team like the Minnesota Vikings, who I did not have beaten the Saints. I thought the clock was going to strike midnight on Case Keenum's Cinderella story. I mean, come on. You can't write this script any better, right? The Super Bowl is in your building. Teddy Bridgewater is still not back yet. Sam Bradford gets hurt. You're rolling with Case Keenum, the third-string QB on your team, and he goes on this tremendous run with this Minnesota Vikings team who has a good defense but also has the good enough pieces on offense to help Case Keenum really explore his boundaries and go out there and put on a good performance every single week. And then Ted Bridgewater, Teddy Bridgewater does come back, but Teddy Bridgewater isn't in game shape to take over for Case Keenum. So Case Keenum goes out there and still gets the job done, gets the job done against the Saints, the miracle catch. Right now, you got to give a lot of credit to Case Keenum and the Vikings, but they're also looking like a team of destiny right now. And I'm telling you before, that team is red hot. You know, turn the oven, turn whatever you got all the way up, the flames high. That's how hot the Vikings are right now. And when you look at a team like the Vikings, if I'm an opposing team, I look at it and say, if I was the Eagles, basically, I was hoping that the Saints would have won because I don't want to face a team like the Vikings going into this game because they are super red hot um, going forward. So... On top of that, if I have to choose one, I'm going to roll with the Minnesota Vikings. Why? They're just the hotter team right now. I think the Eagles won last week. It was more because of Atlanta being too inconsistent. I mean, you said it yourself. How many drop passes did they have? You had passes flying off players' knees. I mean, it was just ridiculous. I mean, and then ESPN threw up a brilliant stat um, after the game was over because, remember, Matt Ryan threw that ball to Julio Jones that was dropped in the end zone. I think, I believe this year... Matt Ryan is only one for 15 or one for 16 when trying to throw to Julio Jones in the end zone this year. I mean, come on. That can't happen when you have a guy like Julio Jones. This Atlanta Falcons team has been so inconsistent all year long, dating back to last year's Super Bowl. They were never really in it, in my opinion. The Falcons were always hot one week, cold one week. I think the Eagles, you know, they were lucky to get a very cold and very inconsistent Falcons team which allowed him to win. Therefore, I'm rolling with the hot hand. I'm taking Case Keenum and the Vikings. Yeah, I mean, like you said, because you mentioned Teddy Bridgewater a few times, give credit to Case Keenum. I mean, you're, you're going into the playoffs. You're going to play the New Orleans Saints. You're, you're the two seed, and you still have a little bit of time where you're asked, like, you know, are you going to be the starter? And there's still conversations in that matter. But I think after last week's game, you're not going with anybody else other than Case Keenum right now the entire way. I mean, he's been your QB for pretty much the entire season, and he has performed phenomenally. He has gotten the job done time and time again. And if I'm the Vikings, I'm pretty confident right now because they got a good chance when you're facing Nick Foles and the Eagles. You might have even wanted to face them over the Falcons, the only different disparity being you would have been a home team if you're playing the Falcons, and you're a game away from hosting the Super Bowl to making it really a home game for yourselves. It is hard to take the Eagles because of how many mistakes had to happen for the uh, the Eagles to win that football game. It is easily you're talking about just. Just the ball that bounces off the cornerback's knee. And in order for the Eagles to catch that on the fly and run it for 20 yards and to get into field goal range because of that play before the half. Obviously, that's three points right there. And then you're talking about a whole other scenario if it's 12 to 10 late in a football game. 
But if it doesn't bounce off his knee and he, he intercepts that ball, there are four Falcons right where he caught that. There are zero Eagles where he catches that football. He's returning that for a ton of yards. That in my mind, the Falcons are putting up points possibly on that one play. So there, there is th- that play alone, I think, changed a lot of the outcome in this football game. And there's certainly a few other plays down the line that I could keep listing off on how the Eagles won, mainly because of bad plays by the Falcons. Give credit to the Eagles' defense. I 100% do. But in my mind, it's the Vikings in this game. They're the better team. They're the favorite in this football game. They should be the favorite in this football game. And at the end of the day, it's Nick Foles. And Nick Foles hasn't done enough in my mind to believe in him to take on a top defense like the Minnesota Vikings. He he was able to get some drives going against the Falcons defense, but it's a whole nother game when you talk about the Minnesota Vikings defense compared to the Atlanta Falcons. And I'm not comfortable enough with taking the Philadelphia Eagles. I have the Minnesota Vikings playing the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. And these are the two teams I kind of thought were going to be playing each other back in like October, November, when we saw the Vikings and Eagles doing extremely well, and Carlson Wentz was still healthy on the Eagles. I still had the Vikings then at the time, and I still think these two teams are going to be playing each other come next week as well. In a couple of days, we'll definitely see where it gets decided. But for the both of us, we do have the Patriots and the Vikings playing in the Super Bowl. I, I expect them both to be very good games, but the game I'm more looking forward to is definitely the Jaguars versus the New England Patriots. Jose, which game do you are you looking forward to more as well? Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Jaguars and Patriots, but don't sleep on the Vikings-Eagles matchup either because I think it's really funny that, remember, at one point, Nick Foles and Case Keenum were both the quarterbacks for the Rams when they were in St. Louis and when they first made the transition to St. Louis. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, to L.A. as well, too. So, I mean, these are two guys that were, you know, that were on the same team at one point, now going against each other. Um, they were backups. Now they're starters for their teams right now with all of it on the line. So it's a good old-fashioned friendly matchup there against Nick Foles and Case Keenum. Um, so, I mean, both games are interesting. Obviously, I'll probably tune in. If you're going to ask me to watch one, I'll watch the Jaguars and Patriots. But uh, Minnesota is also fun to watch, too, with how hot they've been. Again, they look like a team of destiny right now. And especially if the Super Bowl is in their own building, it would be a fun story to watch them win it all, too. Certainly, I'm looking forward to both games and both games being played on Sunday as well. But I want to talk a little bit about the MLB now, and let's talk about the Pittsburgh Pirates. They have made a couple of trades this earlier in the week. On 13th, they traded Garrett Cole as he went to the Houston Astros, getting back Colin Moran, who's their number six prospect in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization now, Jason Martin. Joe Musgrove, and Michael Feliz. And then, uh, just only a couple days ago, the Pirates traded center fielder Andrew McCutcheon to the San Francisco Giants. The Giants had the open center field spot after the Giants traded Denard Spann and a few others for Evan Longoria. And the Giants traded away Kyle Crick and Brian Reynolds. And Reynolds is the number five prospect now on the Pirates organization. So the Pirates have a new five and six prospect. Both of those coming off the trades of Garrett Cole and Andrew McCutcheon. And Jose, we've already heard 
Josh Harrison now wants to be traded. He wants to go to a team that contended. McCutcheon had 28 home runs last year. Derek Cole struggled. He had over a four ERA, but he's always been a consistent mid-three guy. This is a team that finished 75-87 and 87 last year. Was these trades needed to be made uh, for the Pirates, or should they have considered trying to contend this year? Yeah, I, I, f- I do feel like the Pirates definitely hit the panic button just a little bit too early you know, going into this offseason. I mean, this is a team that was, what, a year removed away from a wild card game? Uh, maybe two years removed. I, I forgot when's the last time they made the wild card game. But this is a team that had a really bad year last year. As you said, Garrett Cole, those numbers are not the kind of Garrett Cole you're going to see in Houston. He'll bounce back just fine. Um, you know, you had the debacle of moving McCutcheon to left field, putting Starling Marte in center. Marte gets suspended for steroids. They move McCutcheon back to center. And, and the whole thing was a complete mess, too. So overall, it was not a good year for the Pirates. But it's not because I thought they were a terrible team. This is a team that could still contend. You still had one of the best outfields in baseball defensively with Marte, McCutcheon, and Polanco out there. You know, you have a young stud first baseman in Bell, who I think is going to be good. Harrison's a good player. This pitching staff, it's not the best pitching staff in baseball, but as a collective group, they work very well together. The bullpen's pretty good. So I just feel like they kind of overpanicked a little bit, and maybe they were worrying, hey, you know, we can't keep everybody here. Um, McCutcheon's going to hit free agency soon. We're probably not going to be able to bring him back. Um, McCutcheon, that trade was the only one I kind of understood. Um, again, it's been something that's been brewing for a while now, going back to last year. I don't think the Pirates handled moving McCutcheon to a corner outfield spot very well. Um, you know, they were trying to jump the gun on the aging process for McCutcheon. So that trade I can understand being made because maybe McCutcheon's not too happy with being moved. Maybe he doesn't want to be in Pittsburgh anymore. He's the longest tenured player there for a while. Um, you know, the franchise face, you know, you're not going to be able to bring him back once he gets free agency. So that trade I understood. But when they traded Garrett Cole away, it's, to me, that was the Pirates waving the white flag and just panicking. I mean, I get it. Hey, you want to get you want to get a couple of prospects? Sure. For Garrett Cole, you know, he still has a couple of years left of control as he goes to Houston now. So you can still get a decent return back. Great. But now, even though I feel like the Pirates got some good stuff back in these trades, like I can still see the Pirates contending even with the players that they got back in the trade, and they still have Marte, they still have Polanco. But what upsets me, though, about these trades is that now it has a ripple effect on the current team, right? Now you have Josh Harrison coming forward saying, hey, you know, if we're rebuilding, then I want out. And and that's going to see, you know, that's the ripple effect that you're going to see this year. A lot of players are going to be like, well, hey, what are we doing? I mean, we don't think we're too far away from contending. Why are we not, why are we giving pieces away? We're still right there. We can do this. So, I think it was the wrong message for the Pirates organization to send to the team because now it's a little bit of confusion. Are we rebuilding or are we just trying to replenish the system so we can contend at a sooner rate? I think the Pirates over overreacted a little bit, but nonetheless, I'm not I'm not displeased with what they got back in return. Yeah, what what they got back, I don't mind. Why they did it, that's what I mind. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon's a free agent next year. Okay. So I can understand, like you said, the idea of trading him, especially when you have Austin Meadows, your number one prospect, is ready to play. Uh, Obviously, some health issues have always been his problem, but he's ready to play, and he can play an outfield position, and he can take over for Andrew McCutcheon. So if you really wanted to deal McCutcheon, sure, I can buy it. You get Meadows in there, and he started for you. But this is a team, yeah, when you look at it, 75 and 87, that's not a good record, obviously. They finished fourth in the division, not where you want to finish. 
you have three teams finishing over 500 in the Cardinals. Uh, over 500 in the Cardinals, 83 wins. The Brewers, 86 wins, and the Cubs, 92. And obviously, the Cubs are going to had an off year last year at just 92 wins. They're going to be much more improved. And oh, that's an off year. <laughs> yes, that's in my mind. That's an off year for the Cubs. <laughs> that's an off year. Uh, 92 wins and fine, but. We're talking about a team, like you said, Stalin Marte got suspended 50 games. That's not happening again. Stalin Marte is one of the best players in baseball. And to have him back in the lineup, all right, for 50 more games, that can be the difference in a couple more extra wins here and there. Garrett Cole had a 4.2 sits ERA. That's not happening again. This is a guy that's... In the low three ERA, he threw 200 innings last year after the year before only throwing 116. So obviously there's going to be a little bit of a challenge for him when he's got to throw 80 more innings than the year prior. But this is a guy that can throw 200 innings for you, and you expect a mid-three ERA. You'd expect better numbers from Derek Cole. That could be a difference on the, this year. You look at the team just in general uh, on a pitching. Ian Nova, Jameson Talon, Tyra Glasnow. Uh, Talon, I spent, I think he spent either some time in his rookie season or, or last year injured badly. Uh, Tyra Glasnow never really seemed to get it going this year. But obviously, if you get a full season of him going, you have the pitchers. And, and not only that, you have the pitchers that aren't getting paid much. I think Ian Nova's making the most money as a starter on the team. Garrett Cole... He's only $6.7 million. That, that's affordable for one of the best pitchers in baseball. And, and next year, he's arbitration. And then in 2020, he's a free agent. So there's no real urgency to trade Garrett Cole, especially when you can probably still get the same amount of players and the same top prospect even next year. Even on a one-year deal on a pitcher, that's still going to be phenomenal even at the trade deadline. So I don't understand the urgency for this trade. And if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates, they could have easily contended. You go to the trade deadline, and I think the Pirates are more in contention for a wild card than out of contention. And then it becomes the big challenge of, should they be trading for players? Should they be trying to get money? Should they be getting something for McCutcheon? And the answer is all yes to that kind of stuff. But the options are more open there for the Pittsburgh Pirates, if they wait a couple more months. But they decide to play it safe. They don't want to see McCutcheon or Garrett Cole get injured and lower their value. It doesn't make the right move because now you have guys like Josh Harrison that wants to get traded away. What are you going to do with Francisco Savelli right about now? And you have so many young players around this team that they should have waited it out in my mind. When Josh Bell... Austin Meadows, Stalin Marte, Gregor Polanco. I'm a big fan of Adam Frazier as well. He's hasn't really found a position yet. There's enough young talent around this team that you should be keeping your top stars and not worry about the expense of the team right now. So I don't really like the Pirates made the trades. I think they could have got the same if they waited a couple more months and instead they're urgent. And now they're pretty much we're not even going to view the Pirates as a contender this year. We're going to view the Pirates as rebuilding and, and that they should still be making a few more trades. Maybe no, uh, Ianova or Josh Harrison or Francisco Savelli or 
David Freeze, all those players should be starting to looking to get traded because they should be keeping no bid contracts and no player that isn't in arbitration or isn't locked down for many years to come. And Jose, I want to turn towards now our what I'm what I've been really looking forward to is the MLB Hall of Fame ballot is coming up next week on I think the 24th is when they announce it. And there are 33 players eligible. 14 players have been on the ballot either last year or years prior for many years. And I want to go over a lot of the names that we have on the ballot this year and see who we both consider as Hall of Famers, as guys that could get in this year or they're still a couple years away, and where we really think the ballot is turning to, especially when it comes to a lot of the steroid guys. So let's start with... The two guys who finished with the two highest percentages last year. Trevor Hoffman finished with 74%, just missing the ballot by 1%. You need to get 75 or more. Hoffman has the second most career saves in the MLB at 601. And then Vlad Guerrero, who we know as Mets fans played with the Montreal Expos and then spent a lot of time with the Anaheim Angels, he got a little under 72% last season. Career 318 batting average, over 2,500 hits, and just under 450 home runs. He had 449 career home runs. So let's start with these two guys. Are they Hall of Famers in your mind, and can they get into the Hall of Fame this season? Yeah, these two guys for sure are Hall of Famers in my mind. I'm really surprised that they're not Hall of Famers already. Uh, especially someone like Trevor Hoffman. I feel like they're just kind of just teasing him at this point. Just 1% shy, really. You couldn't find one more guy to vote for him. To me, Trevor Hoffman is the second-best closer in baseball behind Mariano Rivera. So Trevor Hoffman should definitely be in the Hall of Fame by now. Same thing for Vladimir Guerrero. Guerrero, I could have made an argument saying why he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. You just said it. 313, 313 batting average, 449 home runs. I mean, he finished... With a career RBI total of 1,496, I mean, you're talking about just shy of 1,500 RBIs. The guy's a Hall of Famer, all right? He was an excellent defender in the outfield. He had a cannon of an arm. He's a go-glove outfielder. Yeah, towards the tail end of his career, he was a DH, but he was still a monster hitter. And, you know, I look at these two guys. These are two guys that should be in the Hall of Fame. It's one of the reasons why I don't like that people can only vote up to 10 players on the ballot. To me, I think that's stupid. I think it should just be yes or no. That way you can clean the ballot out of players who are not going to be there um, longer. And that way you don't have people saying, well, I think so-and-so is going to vote for him already, so I'm going to try and squeeze in somebody else who may not get that many votes. Um, because, you know, why do why do 75% of us need to vote for Hoffman when I know 74% is? And then Hoffman misses out on a vote because everybody else has that theory as well, too. So I think it's a lot easier. I think you get higher percentages, and I think you get quicker results, too, if you switch to a yes or no instead of choosing 10 names to vote for. Um, but Hoffman and Guerrero, clearly Hall of Famers, clearly should be in already. And if they don't get in this year, I think it's a serious problem. Yeah, 74% for Trevor Hoffman, 71.7% for Vlad Guerrero. I think both these guys are Hall of Famers. I would have argued that Vlad Guerrero should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer last year, but it's a lot more challenging to get in first ballot than the second year. A lot of times you see a huge spike in that second year compared they just missed out last year and i think that's also a good way where a lot of people tend to vote for a guy 
if they didn't the year prior because they're just so close and they're only a couple of votes away. But you figure everybody that voted for Trevor Hoffman, everybody that voted for Vladimir Guerrero last year are all going to vote again this year. I think that even the ballots got slashed a little bit more, so that should be a little bit of an up percentage. That even if they got the same amount as the year prior, it should be enough to get at least Trevor Hoffman into the Hall of Fame and Vlad Guerrero. They're both Hall of Famers in my mind, and I think we're going to see them both get into the Hall of Fame. At 58% last year, and he's been on the ballot. This is going to be his ninth year and only only 10 allowed. And let's take another guy that's been on the ballot for a ninth year, uh, Fred McGriff. He's at only 21.7. So what's your take on both Edgar Martinez and Fred McGriff, who are both now on the ballot for nine years? Well, I mean, it's always hard when it comes to guys like this, right? Guys who have been hanging around the ballot for a couple of years. To me, I, I always have this notion of if you don't think they're a Hall of Famer in year four or five of the ballot, you're not going to think they're a Hall of Famer in year nine um, of the ballot, honestly. Um, because sometimes, you know, and what kind of message does that send if you can't? I mean, I, obviously, these guys don't care. If they get in on their ninth, their ninth year, they're going to be very happy. But I don't think it's a fair message to send them either, saying, hey, we had to wait nine years before we thought you were well-deserving. Um, it just strikes me a little bit as a, a little weird uh, that they would get in on their ninth year. To me, Edgar Martinez is a guy... I should have gotten in a while ago as well. To me, he's a Hall of Famer. I definitely vote for him. To me, Edgar Martinez is the kind of guy who I compare David Ortiz, where they revolutionize the designated hitter position. Edgar Martinez and David Ortiz are the only reason, really, why I respect the DH spot, because these guys made it into a position. David Ortiz did it more with the home run ball. But Edgar Martinez is a great hitter as well, too. Career 312 batting average, career 418 on base percentage. Tell me, Nick, how many DHs do you know that has a on-base percentage of over 400? I don't know that many DHs I have on base percentage over 400. Those guys usually have like 800 strikeouts to their name. Um, you know, when everybody thinks of a DH, they think of Adam Dunn, not a guy like Edgar Martinez. So to me, Martinez and Ortiz, those guys made the designated hitter into a position in my mind. Um, so to me, they revolutionized baseball. And to me, that they're definitely a Hall of Famer for that. Um, Martinez should have gotten in a while ago. And sometimes because of due to the over-clustering of names on the ballots, uh, they get shoved to the side. But I think now that the names are starting to lighten a little bit and there's a lot of more there's a lot more candidates this year, you could just be like, well, okay, no, he's not getting in. He's not getting in. He's not getting in. I think Edgar Martinez is going to benefit from that. Fred McGriff, though, again, another guy who you can make a case for, you know, over 2,000 hits, over 300 home runs, um, 292. I'm sorry. It's, uh, uh, you know, 284 batting career batting average for McGriff. This is a guy where, you know, he might be a Hall of Famer, but – He's sitting at 21.7% last year, and I don't see a giant spike to his name. Um, this is a name that you're probably going to see trend more downward than upward this year. Yeah, his numbers are good. And when you look at it, like you said, 493 home runs. That's more than Vlad Durant, more than Edgar Martinez. It's a lot higher than a lot of guys. And you're, you're talking about he's, what, seven home runs from that coveted 500 number? That's pretty much always known as automatically getting into the Hall of Fame. So he's really... He's really on the cusp for somebody that could get into the Hall of Fame. And this, to me, is a big year for Madriff because, obviously, I don't think he's going to get into the Hall of Fame this year. And with just two years left on the ballot, this could be a real challenge for him to get in in general. But normally when we see these guys at the very late end of their ballots, they get a push, and more guys tend to vote for him. So if he doesn't get a major push... In my mind, that's got to get him at least to about 45%, nearly double of what he's got. 
as he finished with about 22% last year. So he's got to get closer to double of what he got last year in a very challenging uh, ballot that still contains guys like Vladimir Guerrero and a bunch of good new players on their first year. If he wants any shot of getting into the Hall of Fame, the next year, which will still need a 30% jump, which is still incredibly high that I don't think he's going to get 75% needing still a huge amount of votes to get in. And and it's unfortunate because he's played a ton of games at the end of the day. And the ballot only gets more crowded next year as well, too. I mean, they are, I haven't looked at it fully, but there are still some more high profile names that are going to be coming to ballots next year and even the years beyond that as well, too. So it's not like he's going to benefit from a lack of players being there. Yeah, and, and, and McGriff and Martinez are actually like a little bit of vice versa. Uh, Martinez just played over 2,000 games, and his numbers aren't phenomenal. But as for like the stats go when you look further into it, like you pointed out, that on-base percentage, 418, he has the second-highest on-base percentage out of everybody on this ballot. Only Barry Bonds has a higher on-base percentage. And the names that are on this ballot we're talking about, like Manny Ramirez, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomei, Vlad Guerrero, like, he's got a higher on-base percentage than every one of these guys. And I think there is those scenarios in the Hall of Fame where we do compare players to one another when it comes to who do we vote for. So Martinez has that edge, but it's certainly different for these two players on their ninth year. A lot less games in disparity between the two. McGriff, over 2,400 compared to Guerrero, uh, compared to Martinez, who's at only just over 2,000. So it is interesting to see where they go. But the higher edge, it seems like a lot of voters are more sold on Edgar Martinez. They look further into the numbers than just 309 home runs and 1,200-plus RBIs, which is, again, a very small number for Hall of Fame eligibility. But when you take further numbers like his batting average and his on-base percentage, that's where we really look into guys like Edgar Martinez. Let's get into the real challenging conversation now. And that's Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens. They both have really been at the same number every year of their six years, 53 54% last year. And, And even other guys like Manny Ramirez and who's on the ballot again. This is going to be his second year. Manny got over 20% last year, nearly 25. And then Sammy Sosa is still on the ballot. He really is the last guy on it. He's on his sixth year as well, like Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, but he's only at 8% last year. So first off, what's your take when it comes to guys that have used performance-enhancing drugs? Should they be considered on the Hall of Fame ballot? Are these guys Hall of Famers Are you in your mind? And how much do they really affect other players on the ballot? Well, to me, for me personally, I, I'm not going to vote these guys. And if I had a vote, I don't. To me, I strongly believe that you use performance-enhancing drugs, you use steroids, you were trying to cheat. You were trying to make yourself better. You were trying to make yourself better than a lot of other players, um, not the natural way. Um, and yeah, I don't care if you took it for a year. I don't care if you took it for two if you take it for a month, you still tried to take steroids to cheat, and therefore you cheat the game. Now, am I going to sit here and say, hey, you don't deserve a chance to go into the Hall of Fame? No. Why? Because me personally, I'm not going to play judge, jury, and executioner. I don't think anybody should have their right to play that either and say, hey, you don't deserve a shot, right? Isn't this about all about opportunity and giving everybody a fair opportunity? So even though I won't vote for you, 
you still deserve to be on the ballot. Because if other people want to vote for you, then more married to them. Maybe you guys get in. But it would be kind of sad to see these guys in the Hall of Fame, honestly, because I feel that strongly against steroids and performance-enhancing drugs. I don't like cheaters. I don't like people who try to make themselves better um, by, you know, by cheating. I just don't think it's right. I don't think it sets a good example for the future generational players. I don't think it's right to the people who bust their ass every single day and put in the hard work to be a better player, um, the natural way, the right way, um, by toning up their skills and stuff like that. So there's no doubt that these guys are talented, which makes it even worse when they cheat because you guys are already talented enough. Why did you need that extra edge to push it forward? Um, but again, yeah, they should be on the ballot. Um, whether people want to vote for them is a different question. I wouldn't vote for them if I had a vote. Um, but over the past couple of years, I feel like as the voting audience has gotten younger, I definitely feel like I've seen their numbers go up a little bit. And I think the older generation of voters, you know, they're strongly planted it down saying, we don't want these guys in the Hall of Fame. You know, they cheated. We don't want them here at all. Those guys don't really have votes anymore. Those guys are the ones that are on their way out. So now we're seeing new school voters, a lot of sabermetric guys who are in there that are voting and stuff like that. And they don't care so much about the steroids and stuff like that. They want to look at the stats, which is fine. That's their opinion. So I think that's why you're still seeing Clemens and Bonds tick upward. Um, Sammy Sosa, to me, I think he falls off the ballot this year. I don't think he's going to climb up um, from 8.6%. I think he I gets, I think he gets below 5% this year. I think he falls off. I think Manny will hang around, but I really don't think Manny Ramirez will, will, will ever reach that plateau. The only two to me that have a real shot at getting in, even though they use steroids, is probably Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds. Why? Because even when they debuted on the ballot, I think they debuted at like anywhere from 30 to 40%. So they had a strong showing even yeah, they in their were first like year. Yeah, 38%. So they've gone up like at least 15%. Yeah. I mean, so these are two guys that the voters, even though you know they knew that they used steroids, they still felt strongly about and still wanted to give them consideration. And ever since, they've only ever gone upward. And when you're looking at these things, you got to look at the trend. They're moving up every single year by an in- incremental amount, too. You know, they're moving up 10%. They're moving up 15%. This isn't like, oh, they moved up 2% every single year. And it's what? It's their sixth year on the ballot. Still got four more years to go, including this one. So it's very possible that you see Bonds and Clemens get in. Would I vote for them? Hell no. But do they deserve to be on the ballot? Sure. Everybody deserves a shot because, you know, that's the point of giving them the opportunity. So I think Bonds and Clemens eventually get in. The other guys, I don't see so much. Yeah, it's real tough for me to see Sammy Sosa get in. Eight point six last year, and you've been on the ballot for six years. Meaning you're just you're trending order in the wrong direction. You're not gonna get what sixty five percent more of an increase over the next four years. Hard to buy into that. It's a lot easier, like you said. This is probably Sammy Sosa's last year on the ballot, but we're still seeing increases in Barry Bonds in Roger Clemens, and it will be interesting to see where Manny Ramirez goes in this process because unlike those others, he was actually suspended. So for him to hit 23%, even when he gets suspended, I, I think that's a little bit of an issue, though. And that, to me, is really the one that stands out as, okay, we know. It, it wasn't just a report. This is actually, he failed a test. He was suspended for it. No, he failed twice. <laughs> yeah, he failed twice, not only just once. And it, it's gotten to the point where I've always said this. You can, after three times of failing performance-enhancing drugs, you're banned from baseball. I just asked, uh, I actually forget the uh, the Met player that just recently hit that nut. Tanner Mejia? <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
Uh, he joined Pete Rose on Banned from Life for Baseball. Uh, but it, if MLB decided to really try and make sure performance-enhancing drugs weren't on the ballot, and a lot of times people vote for them because, you know, butt sailing may have been, you know, didn't do enough to do, go against it and the different ways of fighting it. MLB can simply just start changing it and try and get players to agree on this rule. That if you're suspended for performance enhancing drugs, you are not considered on the Hall of Fame ballot ever. If all of a sudden you change a rule to that, then when it comes guys like Manny Ramirez and guys like Alex Rodriguez or future players like Ryan Braun, you don't have those conversations. You don't have to be concerned about, you know, will they tarnish a Hall of Fame because they won't get in it. They won't be part of it at all. And it's one of those things that I'm, I'm for that idea. But the problem with seeing, like, Sammy Sosa, okay, 609 home runs. Clearly that's deserving to get in by just the 500 number. Manny Ramirez, 555 home runs. Clearly that's deserving to get in if it's not a steroid player. And obviously, Barry Bonds, 762, and Roger Clemens, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, 350-plus wins. But you tell me with steroids, if the two of them get in, that don't give me the sentence, oh, they were Hall of Famers before they took, and they wanted to just increase their numbers. That's saying to me, they're steroid users, and they have good enough numbers that is above steroid-using numbers. And by that, we have to let them in because their numbers are just too good to not. And in my mind, I wouldn't vote for any of them. Like you, I'm, I'm not voting for any of them. I, I know the Hall of Fame of MLB isn't always the greatest of people and the greatest characters, uh, but it still doesn't change the fact that they took performance enhancing drugs at the end of the day. And they were on the Mitchell reports, and in my mind, they do more damage than good. I have, probably people are sick of seeing this debate, but they also hurt everybody else on the ballot because we consider a guy like Sammy Sosa and consider a guy like Manny Ramirez, and we take away votes from maybe a guy like Larry Water, or we take votes away from a guy like Mike Messina and Kurt Schilling or other guys that are on the ballot for first year because we consider the Hall of Fame, uh, the steroid players for Hall of Fame. Speaking of Mike Messina and Kurt Schilling, Messina's on the ballot for his fifth year. He's at just over 51%. And Kurt Schilling's on the ballot for his sixth year at 45%. Where do we look at them as Hall of Famers, Jose? Well, to me, Mike Messina is probably one of the most interesting names on the ballots. Obviously, I have family members who are very fond of Mike Messina. And He's a weird player because he's one of those guys where it's like, oh, Mike Messina's pitching cool. He was so consistent for the Yankees and even when he was with the Orioles. And, you know, it's so weird because, like, he's one of those guys where you knew he was around, but you didn't realize how great he was until after he retired and you looked at all his stats and stuff like that. Mike Messina has some great numbers. You know, he has 270 career wins, 3.68 ERA. And what's more fascinating, too, is that 3.68 ERA, and he spent his entire career in the AL East, right? You know, he, he was on the Orioles. Then he went to the Yankees, and these were the years where the AL East was like a monster, basically, between the Yankees and Red Sox going back and forth. You still had some heavy-hitting teams with the Blue Jays and Orioles, too, as well, too. And 
And, you know, so Mike Messina really made a living in the AL East and really dominated sometimes, too. Again, 278 wins, 153 losses, a 3.68 ERA. Um, you know, he had a whip of 1.19. Uh, you know, in 3,000 innings pitched, he only walked 785 batters. I mean, that, I mean, that's pretty good. And again, you don't realize these things because it's Mike Messina at the end of the day. And with Mike Messina, you know, he, he's not the flashiest guy around, but you don't realize how good he was until after he retired. So to me, I think Mike Messina is a Hall of Famer, but I can understand why he would fly under the radar just because he doesn't have that name recognition. He doesn't have that personality recognition. And I think he will end up flying under the radar. I don't think he'll make the Hall of Fame despite him being a guy who should really have a strong case um, for him. A guy like Kurt Schilling is another one who he's had his reputation tarnished a little bit. And even though I think Kurt Schilling is also a Hall of Famer, you have to wonder the outside antics, right? The discrimination things that came out against him of him saying bad things about certain races and certain religions and him getting fired from ESPN. Does the Hall of Fame voters now also take into effect the character issues that Kurt Schilling has had over the past couple of years? Does that hurt his chances? I think that's something that might end up hurting his chances as well, too. So I'm interested in seeing where does Schilling land here because if Schilling goes up in the numbers, and I'm not just talking 1% or 2% because this is his sixth year on the ballot. If he goes up about 10 or 15%, then I'll have a better idea if Schilling's getting in or not. But if he doesn't, then Schilling's not getting in at all. Yeah, my question is interesting and her Schilling because their numbers are relatively pretty similar and close enough uh, between the two. Uh, Schilling has more strikeouts, so over 300 more for 300 less innings. He's got a lot less wins. And we do look at wins a lot less than what we do nowadays, uh, of course. But it's really on a standpoint of where we looked at the two of them. But it's also interesting because we saw them go up last year. And a part of that was because there's not really anybody else in the starting pitching. Uh, really what hurt Messina one year in Kurt Schilling was when Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson were on the Hall of Fame ballot. And that was really a tough year of what's going to happen to them. But this year, I mean, you look at the, uh, the first-year ballot players, and there's not really any starting pitcher that stands out, or really any pitcher that stands out. And we'll get into a little bit more on that one. In my mind, there's not. So it's really just three starters, which is Roger Clement, Mike Messina, and Kurt Schilling. And then it becomes okay if you're not considering Roger Clemens because of steroids, or if you are, do you put Messina on your list as well? And do you put Kurt Schilling on your list? And are you putting three starting pitchers on your ballot when maybe you would have put a different pitcher if they were on and considering? So there's... There's certainly a lot of question marks when it comes to Mike Messina and Kurt Schilling. Uh, I think it's important to know, like you sent me earlier, uh, the that 194 ballots have been revealed so far, which is the 45%. And where where is Schilling and Messina? And neither one of them are over that 75 threshold, but Messina's at 73 after 45% has been shown. So there's a high love for Mike Messina, like you have had, and. I, I agree Mike Messina is a Hall of Fame pitcher, but I don't know if he necessarily gets into the Hall of Fame this year. I think we're going to see an increase on Mike Messina's numbers. I think he's going to be in that 60 threshold. And I think that's where we're going to be seeing him, where you could see him around like maybe 65% of the vote. 
but I don't I don't expect Mike Messina to get into the Hall of Fame this year, and I think Kurt Schilling's the same way. If Mike Messina's not getting in this year, I don't expect Kurt Schilling to get in this year. He's always been under Mike Messina when it comes to the ballot voting. I expect that to stay the same way. Uh, let's take three other names that have been on the ballot a little bit longer. Larry Walker at 21%. Jeff Kent finished at 16%. He's on the ballot for his fifth year. And Gary Sheffield, he's been on the ballot for four years now at 13%. Are any of these three players Hall of Famers in your mind? Uh, I mean, to me, uh, you know, I'll start with Jeff Kent and Gary Sheffield. Those are a little bit more easier. Those are good players to me. They were never great. They were never standout players. Um, I know uh, Gary Sheffield has the 500 home runs to go along with it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phenomenal feat. But to me, just Jeff Kent and Gary Sheffield, just they aren't Hall of Fame players. Um, you know, they're, they're, you have great players and you have good ones, but this isn't, this isn't a, a hall for, for good players. You know, we're, we're looking for great, outstanding players. And to me, just Jeff Ken and Gary Sheffield just never fit that threshold in my eyes. Um, you know, they were always players that you wanted on your team, but they were never superstar players. They were never those get-on-my-back kind of guys. Um, and I just think they don't, they're not just not Hall of Famers in my eyes. Um, when you look at Larry Walker, it's a little bit of a bigger debate. You know, his numbers, again, he did play a lot of years with the Rockies as well, too, so maybe his numbers are a little bit padded. Um, but he's a slugger that didn't get shown a lot of love. And again, maybe it's because of a lot of the steroid guys. He did play within the steroid era, too. I mean, no one's ever really accused him of it, but you never know. Maybe he falls into that suspicion category, and because we're wasting our time with guys like Bonds and, and Clemens, maybe you know Larry Walker falls off a lot of people's ballots because, again, you can only vote for 10 guys. Um, I think Larry Walker also falls into that category of a guy who maybe you should make a case for a rule change in terms of how many people you could vote for. Yeah, Larry Walker, I think, is never going to get the appreciation. I, I don't think Walker is a Hall of Famer. I just don't. He, he hasn't played enough games. His numbers are just not strong enough and uh, he's always had that the same problem that everybody plays when they play for the Rockies oh he plays in Coors Field the numbers are going to go up flying that's been the same way when it came to Larry Walker the same conversation when Todd Helton played for them the same conversation we hear nowadays for Nolan Arenado the same for Troy Tilwitzki Carlos Gonzalez Charlie Blackman and and Five, ten years down the line, we'll probably hear the same conversations of new players and new faces for the Rockies. It's not going to change. It's the same viewing. Larry Walker, I think, is one of those guys that I don't think is going to be off the ballot. I think him and Fred McGriff are, are the same type of player. They're eight-year, nine-year on the ballot at 21 22%, and they're just never going to go any further. Maybe they'll uh, surpass 25 or 30% by the end of their 10 years. But these are two guys that are going to be on the ballot for every one of their years. They're not going to get eliminated for that 5% mark, but they're not going to get over the 75% threshold over these next few years because they're just never going to get the support. And I think we're going to see probably Manny Ramirez, Larry Walter, and Fred McGriff for, full, for a while. Walter and McGriff for a little bit longer. They've got about three years total left or two years left, and that's going to be it. But Sheffield and Kent are interesting because we're seeing a lot of players come in this year. And I think Sheffield and Kent, I think it almost has the Sammy Sosa appeal where they may just stay on the ballot. But I expect a huge spike in their present voting 
because we have Chipper Jones, Jim Tomei, Scott Rowe, and a lot of big-name hitters. And I think, do you see Ken Sheffield or even Sosa being knocked off the ballot because a lot of these first-year ballot players? Yeah, I mean, maybe not. I can still see them being in the same spot as Sammy Sosa this year. Maybe they'll hover right above 5%. Um, it's a possibility because there is a good, decent amount of influx players that are coming in this year. But again, half a lot of the players that are on the first year to ballot are probably also going to fall in that threshold, too, of anywhere from 5% to 10%. A lot of them are going to fall off the ballot, even though it's their first year. So if I'm a betting man, I say they probably stay on the ballot, but it's not going to be with a high percentage. And last, the one last player on the 14, before we get into all the first-year ballot players, is Billy Wagner. Uh, Billy Wagner played a couple of years for the New York Mets. Closer and... This is one of the interesting guys because he does not have as many saves as Trevor Hoffman. Wagner only 422 saves. He has a better whip. He has a higher ERA plus. He has a lower ERA. Uh, and where do you consider Billy Wagner? Because Wagner only got 10% last year. Is he a Hall of Famer in your mind, or is he one of those guys that could be stuck on the ballot for a lot of years? Yeah, to me, I think he is. I mean, um, I don't know if I'm being a little bit biased, maybe, since I since we are Met fans here, but he was definitely one of my favorite closers that the Mets have ever had. Um, I think he's a guy over 400 saves. Not a lot of guys have that anymore. You know, you're not going to see a lot of guys with 400, 500 saves anymore with how we utilize bullpens in today's game. Um, so that's an incredible feat in its own, you know. No, he's not Trevor Hoffman. He's not Mariano Rivera. That's why those two guys are so legendary, and that's why those two guys – or in a league of their own. But Billy Wagner is a top-tier closer in my eyes for all those years. Had a lot of good years at the Mets. You know, arm problems and injury problems really derailed the latter half of his career. You saw him have some stints with Atlanta, have some stints with Washington. They didn't quite work out so well. Um, but, you know, to me, Billy Wagner still is a Hall of Famer. I just, you know, he's one of those guys that he's not going to get a lot of love. Again, not a flashy name, not a household name, not a guy that a lot of people are going to be like, oh, yeah, Billy Wagner, he was the best. Um, but when you really look at his numbers – uh, he has some good numbers. So to me, he's a Hall of Famer, but I can understand why people would leave him off the ballot. See, this is this is an interesting one, because if you go by war, Trevor Hoffman, 28.4. Billy Wagner, 28.1. Out of the best seven-year span, Hoffman had a 19.6 war compared to Billy Wagner, 19.9. So Billy Wagner had a better seven-year span than Trevor Hoffman's seven-year span. But Wagner plays in... 180 less games and 180 less innings pitched. 180 less saves. But he has 60 more strikeouts in that sp- in that span as well. The difference is Wagner walked a lot more batters. We as Met fans also know that. Uh, <laughs> too well. <laughs> too, too well. <laughs> uh, I, the numbers to support it on war are there on why Billy Wagner deserves a push. Both of these pitchers have only been on the ballot for three years on Hoffman and Wagner when you compare the two. But when you look at all the pitching stats, the saves, the innings pitched, the games, at the end of the day, I understand why people are going Trevor Hoffman style. And I think there has no been, there's never been a set number when it comes to closers it's it's been more other numbers than saves and when we look at just saves uh, the problem is i think like lee smith 
is fourth in the MLB in saves, and he might have like 450. He's not in the Hall of Fame. So saves alone is not going to get you there, and, and the number being 400 is not enough in my mind. And we've seen closers like Kaufman have 600, and Mariano Rivera had over 600, and Rivera was a first-year ballot guy. And Hoffman's still trying to get into the Hall of Fame. He should have been last year, but it's taken him two years. So it's really for Billy Wagner. The real challenge for him this year is stay on the ballot. Because if he's able to stay on the ballot this year and not sink at under 10%, and at the moment, again, like you sent me the the 194 ballots, Wagner's not on the list. And the list goes as low as 6.2 at the moment. So if Wagner's not at that number, we're, we're looking at Wagner, and I'm assuming Wagner's not over 5%. And it's going to be a real challenge for Wagner to stay at 5% this year with the names that are coming in. But if he's able to do it, maybe he'll get a natural push come year four because then Trevor Hoffman's gone. And Wagner becomes one of the best closers on the ballot period for the next five years. So that's going to be really the challenge for Billy Wagner. I don't necessarily think he's going to stay on the ballot. I think you're going to see a lot of guys in that 11 to 14 range of Jeff Kent, Gary Sheffield, Billy Wagner, Sammy Sosa, I think they all could be knocked off the ballot this year because there are a few bigger names that are coming in that are going to take these guys' spots. And and it's hard to see Billy Wagner staying over that 5% threshold. His numbers can be better than Hoffman when you look at him, but overall I don't think Billy Wagner will ever get into the Hall of Fame, and I don't even know if he survives in this Hall of Fame ballot row. Let's look at now the rema- the other 19 new faces that are coming into the ballot. And they're led by four big names. Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, Scott Rowland, and Andrew Jones. Uh, the two Jones from the Atlanta Braves for the longest time. Certainly we remember them destroying the Mets. But, Jose, what are, which names stand out to you out of those four? Uh, well, clearly Chipper Jones, I think, is one. I think Chipper Jones is one of those guys where it's going to be, you know, obviously it's unanimous. He's a Hall of Famer. Maybe not unanimous, like 100%, but, you know, he's going to get a, he's going to get a vote in a 90 percentile range. Um, Chipper Jones probably one of the best switch hitters ever in the game. Um, you know, massive amount of home runs. Uh, Chipper Jones' career, what, 468, I think, is the total that we're looking at here. Um, over f- 1,500 RBIs for sure. Um, this is a guy that we know all well too well, right? He kills the Mets. Um, but... Overall, I think he's also a very underrated player, right? Because we all know him as a Met killer. But, you know, you have people say, you know, is Tripper Jones really that good? Or do do just Met fans consider him that good because he's always done damage against the Mets? But when you look at his overall numbers, he really is a pretty good player, a really good player, um, and definitely a Hall of Famer. You know, he really um, changed the game in terms of being a switch hitter, right? Now, when we talk about the best switch hitters, you know, of our generation, we talk about Chipper Jones. We talk about Mark Teixeira. You know, we talk about all these guys. These guys get it done from both sides of the plate. And the fact that he's, you know, he spent his entire career with Atlanta. You don't see that anymore. And guys like that are a true icon in itself where they can spend all these years with one team. So to me, Chipper Jones definitely gets in. Jim Tomei is an interesting name. Um, this is a guy that, you know, he might be, uh, you know, he might be hurt with the whole steroid era thing as well, too. Because, you know, he's a guy who hit a lot of home runs during that time span. Um, 
you know, some guys might look at him the wrong way. But Jim Tomey, to me, is, again, another guy like David Ortiz, like Edgar Martinez, who, even though he was a good defensive first baseman early on, he's also a guy that kind of made the DH what it is um, at this point in time. I think Tomey definitely gets in. You know, guys like Andrew Jones and Scott Rowland, those are two interesting names because although those guys were great for their team, I don't consider them great players in general in MLB. Andrew Jones is even more interesting to me because you're looking at a guy that played for how many years did Andrew Jones play? He played for a total of 17, right? The first 10 years were phenomenal, right? What do you have, 10 gold gloves, somewhere in that range? I mean, this guy was a stud, all-star center fielder, gold glove center fielder. And then he goes to the L.A. Dodgers, and his career falls off, right? Then he has, what, a year or two with the Yankees where his bat come alive? But Andrew Jones is still not the Andrew Jones of old. So when you look at a guy like Andrew Jones, what are we looking at? Are we looking at those 10 phenomenal years? Are we looking at those debacle seven that were towards the end of his career? And do we cut him some slack because he has those seven years? But he had the 10 years under his belt of phenomenal season. So for a guy like Andrew Jones, I could see him hitting the ballot at 20, 30 percent. But that's the highest I think we'll ever see him on the ballot. I don't think he gets in at all. Yeah, this it's an interesting four names. If you had to tell me which one I don't think at all gets in, Scott Roll. Yeah, think. again, he's a great player for the Cardinals and for the Phillies when he was there, but to me, he's not a Hall of Famer. I, I think he's almost like that Jeff Kent number. I, I yeah. don't see him eclipsing 20 ever, and, and this is a guy that could stay on the ballot for a couple of years, but eventually he's going to fall off. Um, and he's never going to get... He was a good player, good Cardinal, but Long term, I don't think at the end it's going to really matter. Five, six years down the line, maybe that will be his elimination number, like a Jeff Kent or a Gary Sheffield. Um, Andrew Jones is interesting because, like you said, take his seven-year span, his best seven years, his war at that point is 46.4. Chipper Jones is 46.6. And then when you go into further numbers, only Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens have a higher number. So on the ballot on these numbers, Jones has the fifth highest in a four... Uh, Andrew Jones, because there are two on the ballot this year of Jones. Andrew Jones has the fifth highest in a seven-year span. So he was, he was dominant as dominant can be. And the numbers aren't that bad at the end of the day. 434 career home runs. And obviously, if he played pretty much any better than what he could have been from when he just digressed and went down immediately, like just complete skydiving fall. If he doesn't do that, we're talking about Andrew Jones in a whole other way. We're talking about Andrew Jones as a Hall of Famer because one or two more good years, and he's certainly going to have the numbers that just jack up at his career highs. And were, But 1,900 career hits... 434 career home runs, a 254 batting average. I don't think Andrew Jones has enough. I think we just looked at Andrew Jones' this ballot as, well, he had a great run, but are we really rewarding a player at a Hall of Fame for seven or eight really good years? And to me, that doesn't seem like enough to make you Hall of Fame worthy. Chipper Jones and Jim Tomei, now, I think these are two guys that we're looking at as first ballot Hall of Famers. And if we're looking at the two guys that are really going to destroy guys like a Jeff Kent or a Gary Sheffield or a Billy Wadner or Sammy Sosa's voting numbers, because Chipper Jones and Jim Tomey are coming in, they're the difference makers. Chipper Jones, 468 home runs, like you said. 
85 career war. Only two players on this ballot have higher number on war, and that's Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. He might be one, in my mind, Chipper Jones is what, top five greatest switch hitter of all time? He just continuously got it done. It also helps that he completely destroyed the Mets, and I got to watch him a ton destroy the Mets and every other team in that division. Uh, But Chipper Jones is one of the greatest players of all time, and I think it also is another one of those Atlanta Braves that we've seen through the last couple of years of that Tom Glavin, of that John Smoltz, of the Dred Maddox, and, and that error of the Atlanta Braves and Chipper Jones being the Nets one on that list. Uh, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. And Jim Tomei, 612 career home runs. I, if the ballot ignores 612 career home runs, what more can you do as a baseball player? It's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Normally, 500 is enough. And this is a guy that didn't take steroids, and he hit 612. He's one of the top, what, 10 greatest home run hitters of all time. He's going to finish as a first ballot Hall of Famer in my mind as well. Uh, four names that really were interesting to me, though, also on the ballot. Johnny Damon, Jamie Moyer, Omar Vistuel, and... I'm going to throw another former Met out there, but Johan Santana. So, Jose, let's dive into a couple of them for a moment. Uh, Break down whichever one you want to start with. And do you think these guys are Hall of Famers, or they just spent so many years in baseball type of thing that we can't really consider their numbers? Yeah, to me, Johnny Damon, Jamie Moyer, and Omar Vizquel all kind of get thrown into the same boat. Really good players, right? They were good for their clubs. They made impact for the teams that they played for. Omar Vizquel, 10 goal gloves. I mean, it was great, but his bat wasn't exactly all there, though, right? Are we going to reward a guy just based on his defensive skills? You know, we don't really do that. So you can't really make an argument for Vizquel. I mean, I think he definitely deserves some votes. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, I think he still is a guy that, even though he racked up an incredible amount of hits over his career, over 2,000, I believe, you know, you're still talking about a guy that was known more for his defense. Johnny Damon, same thing. Great Boston Red Sox player. Was great for the Yankees when he came to the Yankees, but this is a guy that was just a really good player, not a great player. Jimmy Moyer, I mean, you got to give the guy a lot of credit. He was a warrior. Went out there all the time to the age of, what, 50, basically, and was going out there and still winning games. He has an incredible amount of wins, but a lot of that is attributed to the fact that he played, what, over 20-plus seasons to get them? Again, to me, Moyer, really good, not great. And for Santana, I actually throw him in the same category as Andrew Jones. I mean, you're talking about a guy that was as dominant as dominant can be. Um, Best pitcher in baseball when he was in Minnesota, right? I have no problem throwing that label out there um, when he was around with the Twins. Goes to the Mets, has a lot of injury problems. Um, Ever since he left the Mets, can't seem to stay healthy. Is trying to do a comeback constantly. He wants to come back, but he can't make it onto the field. So, again, same question for Andrew Jones for Yohan Santana. Do we reward him for a great seven, eight years when he was in Minnesota? The answer is no. So none of these guys get in, in my opinion. I think Moyer and Visquel definitely deserve to be at like a 40%, 50%, and then you can watch them drop over the next couple of years. But for guys like Santana <coughs> or Johnny Damon, I find it hard to see them getting above 20%. Uh, I'll start with you on Santana. I mean, like you said, seven-year span dominant. Uh, the numbers are really are good, but I don't think they're Hall of Fame worthy. He has a 3.2 ERA. 
I, I mean, that's as dominant as you're going to get at some points. Uh, you can't ask for much, but the problem is just over 2,000 innings. And when we compare that to, like, Mike Messina, 3,500. Kurt Schilling, 3,200. I mean, Jamie Moore had a four-plus ERA, but he threw twice as many innings as Johan Santana. He's over 4,000 innings pitched. And so, like, it goes on further into that, where it's like, where do you consider someone that has only thrown 2,000 innings, that has just under 2,000 strikeouts? And to me, it's just not enough to put Johan Santana in the Hall of Fame, and it's not enough to give him a real vote, especially on what looks to be a stacked ballot this year. Johnny Damon and Omar Bisquell are pretty interesting because I kind of consider Johnny Damon good enough on number standpoint for the Hall of Fame. It hits 2,700. And then when you look at like extra base hits, not just home runs, but doubles, he's one of the top doubles men. Uh, home runs, you're not going to get much from Johnny Damon. And that's unfortunate because it could be one of the difference makers for him. And he also is a career 284 guy. I mean, he didn't have a bad four-year span as well, uh, seven-year span, but to me it's not enough. And then Omar Vestuel is interesting because, like you said, the defense is great. 24 years in baseball, and he has just under 2,900 hits. So if he plays out a few more years till eternity at that point, uh, he could have hit 3,000. He got 24 to get to him to over 2,800. So it's... It's how much of a number do we hit uh, for that precious 3,000 mark. He's not there, and he's nowhere near there. And I I don't think the voters are going to look at Omar Vestwell because of that, because of the hits, because of the longevity. But when you got a guy like Fred McGriff who has 493 home runs, and we're not considering him when he's near that 500 mark, and even guys like Larry Walker – it's hard to put Omar Vestwell in a reasonable debate just because he has 2,800 hits for playing seven more years than Walker or playing five more years than Fred McGriff and seven plus more years than Jeff Kent. So there's not enough reason for me to say Omar Vestwell. And Jamie Moyer, I think, is a lot of fun. 25 years playing baseball, 269 wins, one less than. Mike Messina, but in no way, shape, or form do I see a pitcher with a 4.25 ERA in 4,000-plus innings pitched, and not even that many strikeouts to go with it, get into the Hall of Fame. I I think they're interesting, and I think it's going to be interesting for me to see where they wind up. Do, Do they get enough to stay on for another year? Can they be like Scott Rowland and Andrew Jones? Two guys, I believe. Well, Andrew Jones, I believe, can get over that threshold of like 5%. Scott Rowland, I believe, can get over that threshold of like 10 to 15%. And it's where does Omar Vestwell wind up? Can he get to that over 5% mark? I don't think he's going to be a Hall of Famer ever. But it's can he be more than just one and done? Uh, and that's where I really look at him. And, Lastly, I'm not going to name every guy because you know, I can just Chris Carpenter, Levon and Orlando, uh, Levon Hernandez, Orlando Hudson, Kevin Millward, Carlos Lee, Aubrey Huff, and Ducky Matsui. 
I think we've met him a couple times with the Staten Island Yankees. Uh, Jason Inrenhausen, uh, probably best remembered for the Oakland Athletics and part of the uh, Moneyball and Brad Widge. Uh, but lastly, I mean, one other name that really stood out to me was Kerry Wood. Because uh, he almost has that almost uh, like Johan Santana. Uh, came in baseball, projected to be this incredible Nets top pitcher and just never was really able to get it going because of injuries. Uh, anybody on this list stand out to you that we haven't covered? No, actually, I, you brought up a good name. I was going to say when I was looking at the list, Kerry Wood um, is an interesting name too because, again, like he was supposed to be the next big thing. And with him, it happened a little bit earlier than Santana. Santana was already an established ace by the time his arm trouble started to happen. But with Kerry Wood, you know, he was a lot like Steven Strasburg, throwing gas, coming through the door, expecting big things out of this guy, and then the arm trouble soon passed by too then he got you know he transitioned into a closer role he was pretty successful there um but his career never panned out it just continues to be a big what if um for Kerry Wood honestly when we look at him sometimes it's like you know what would have been if, if he would have stayed healthy and he really would have been the next big thing how dominant of a starter do you think he could have been how many wins do you think he could have racked up um it, it was an interesting story another name that did catch me off guard too was Brad Lidge um Brad Lidge I mean you're talking about a guy that was a dominant closer when he was in Houston and he was pretty dominant in Philadelphia too but again, kind of like Andrew Jones, you know, he had a, he, you know, he tailed off toward the end of his career. Um, you know, and you just you can't really make a case for it because you know when you're looking at the Hall of Fame, we're not looking at a couple of years here. We're looking at your entire career. Yeah, Kerry Wood again, like 446 total games, right? Yeah. Only 178 games started. We don't we don't think of him as a relief pitcher or a closer. We think of him as a starter and a starter that didn't even make 200 career starts. I mean, Johan Santana, we knew were injured at times, but he made 284. Yeah. And so, like, that, that to me is incredible. Uh, and that Terry Wood is one of those players of, the, like, one of the biggest what-ifs. Because when we saw him as a starter, and when he was able to stay healthy, I mean, wow the numbers. But just never, never able to become the player everybody hoped he was. Uh, so... With that, I want to ask two last questions to you. First, what players do you think are going to get into the Hall of Fame this year? And then well, I'll ask you a second question after that to keep them a little bit dis- uh, disparity between the two. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we went over it a little bit before, but to me, the two players that get into the Hall of Fame this year, I think Trevor Hoffman finally definitely gets in. Um, and I, I think definitely Tripper Jones gets in. I think those are the two that are going to be the most obvious, right? Um, usually when a guy just falls short of 1%, um, I think it's a slap in the face if he doesn't get in this year. What's he going to get, 74.8, 74.9? Um, I think Trevor Hoffman definitely gets in. I think Chipper Jones definitely gets in. Um, I, I can name a couple few that I probably think will get in, but I think the two most obvious choices are Chipper Jones and Trevor Hoffman. I think it's safe to say you could pencil their name already in for this year. So I, I, have, I have four players. I'm going with a lot of players get into the Hall of Fame this year. Uh, for me... It's going to be Trevor Hoffman, like you. Uh, I also think Vladimir Guerrero. I think it's too tough to expect a guy that got nearly 72% of the vote last year. And that was just in his first year. And normally we even see a little bit more of a push in that second year because, I mean, we even know it. It, Ken Griffey Jr. didn't even get a full 100% because he was on the ballot for a first year and some other guys avoided him for whatever reason. So I think Vlad Guerrero can get... A couple extra player, a uh, couple extra ballots, 
uh, just because he's on the second year and there are some guys that just don't vote for first-year players unless they're like a Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, or above and beyond. And then I have Chipper Jones and Jim Tomei. Both first-year ballots, I think they're getting in. Chipper Jones is just one of the greatest switch hitters of all time. I think you have him as well getting into all of fame. And Jim Tomei, 600-plus career home runs. I, I don't think there's any reason to ignore that factor. And I can't see why 75% of the people are going to vote uh, or not going to vote for Jim Tomei. So I have those four names getting in uh, this year. And I think, again, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the back end. But, Jose, if you had a ballot, who would you vote for? Uh, would you give it to 10 people or eight or so? I'm going to ask, what would be your ballot as well as one of our last questions on uh, episode 20? Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably fill up the ballot probably up to maximum. At the top of my head, I would definitely vote for Trevor Hoffman and Vladimir Guerrero. I'd vote for Chipper Jones, Jim Tomei, Mike Messina. Um, to me, those five guys, clearly. Edgar Martinez is another one at six. I can go on and on and on, honestly. Well, you got um, uh, a few more. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, I I think that I think that actually might be it, though. <laughs> like I mean, now that I think about it, I'm one of those guys that says screw the ten names. But you know, that's why I feel like it's better sometimes to just go down the list and say yes or no because that way it's an easier catch. Um, so yeah, Hoffman, Guerrero, Martinez, uh, Messina to me gets in. Um, if I had a vote, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomei, um, you know, and I I would yeah, I mean that that's pretty much it. I'd vote for Omar Vizquel. I don't think he'll get in, but those would be the seven guys I'd vote for. And I guess I have three to spare, but I'd probably leave it at those seven. Yeah, I'm pretty much on the same number as you. Uh, Hoffman, Vladimir Guerrero, Edgar Martinez, Messina, and Kurt Schilling are probably the only five players on the active ballot of multiple years that I'm going to vote for. And then from there, I, I look at it and say, I'll vote for Chipper Jones. I'll vote for Jim Tomei because I believe they're Hall of Famers. Uh, if I'm going to give it to another name other than No. 7, I'll probably go Johnny Damon out of everybody else. I'm, I'm probably going to pass Omar Vizquel. I, I think he's going to get on the ballot past the 5%, but I, I would not be voting for Omar Vizquel. I, I would give my vote on my 8th to Johnny Damon, and that's where I would probably stop. I wouldn't even give it to Billy Wadner at that point. He just hasn't played enough for me to go that route. Uh, it's hard to go with Larry Walker. It's hard to go with Jeff Kent. Uh, I, I realize I'm t- if I'm taking Johnny Damon, I shouldn't sure enough take a guy like Larry Walker or Jeff Kent. But if I had it over the full 10, those would be the other two I would be including on there. But either way, I'd probably just be giving it to Johnny Damon just to try and get him over that 5% to give him that extra per, uh, vote. But overall, I don't think it would make much of a difference for Damon. And that would be... I'd have mine eight, but really only seven I'd really be fully supporting of, and Damon would just be a throw-me-of. With that, I want to turn it to Beardback, where we look back in sports history on January 19th, and really only two things uh, to me stood out. Uh, Back in 1937, Cy Young, Tris Speaker, and Nap LeJory, elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. So I figured that one was a pretty good one if we're talking about the Hall of Fame. And then in 1993, the Oakland A's unveiled a new elephant logo uh, as 
their logo, as you see the elephant with the ball for the Oakland Athletics, that logo created in 1993 on January 19th. And lastly, we always have our dude and dunce of the week. And I totally have to give the dude of the week. It was thinking about it for about three seconds. Stefan Ditz. Six uh, receptions, 137 yards, one touchdown, and we all know the touchdown of winning the game and getting the Vikings to the NFC Conference Championship as they'll take on the Eagles on Sunday. And, Jose, who is our dunce of the week for our podcast episode 20? No love for the guy who threw the ball? Man, man, you you people are... I've been loving... Um, the Case Keenum and the Vikings all season long, but I gotta give it to Dids there. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, it's understandable. I, I was just joking there. My dunce of the week has to be a pair of former Celtic teammates, Paul Pierce and Rajon Rondo. If you don't know what's going on, the Boston Celtics wanted to give a tribute video to Isaiah Thomas for his time in the Boston Celtics uniform on the same day that Paul Pierce is getting his jersey retired. Now, Paul Pierce has repeatedly complained saying that he doesn't want to share that day with anybody else. It's his day, and he shouldn't have to watch any tribute video, even if it's only a minute or two minutes long. Well, to that, Paul Pierce, I say you should really listen to Draymond Green again, read his lips very slowly, pop your ears out a little bit, and hear him say, you're not Kobe Bryant. We don't like you like Kobe Bryant, so stop thinking you're just a self-entitled guy who only has one championship under your belt. Don't act like you've done crazy amount of things for the sport of basketball, and share the day for just two lousy minutes because honestly if you were any if you were a good teammate or if you weren't a selfish person you understand why Isaiah Thomas means a lot to that Boston faithful crowd and you would let them enjoy that video on a day where they're retiring another Boston Legends number on the flip side you have Rajon Rondo who's upset that the Celtics were even honoring Isaiah Thomas at all saying since when do we hang banners saying they went to the Eastern Conference Finals he didn't do anything for Boston well I'm sorry Mr. Rondo that you feel that way. I'm sorry that you never connected to the crowd of Boston in, what, the four or five years you were there than Isaiah Thomas did in years one and two. You know what Isaiah Thomas did too? Did uh, did do, though? He connected to the city of Boston. He tried to pitch and get Kevin Durant to come here. He helped Gordon Hayward sign with the Boston Celtics before he was traded. The man played a freaking playoff game after his sister died. All right? Let me repeat that one more time. He played a playoff game after his sister died. The man was grieving, his family was grieving, and he came back onto the court. Why? Because he didn't want to let his teammates down. He didn't want to let the city of Boston down. He didn't want to let his family down. And he came back out there and played a freaking basketball game. So you know what, Rajon Rondo and Paul Pierce, I'm sorry you guys are just these petty divas, but I could tell you, if you ask a lot of Boston Celtics fans, they'll gladly take Isaiah Thomas back over you two clowns any day. So therefore, Paul Pierce and Rajon Rondo, co-dunces of the week. Had to get that one off my chest. If you ever had the uh, Russell and the Beard betting odds of Dunce in a week, and usually his LeVar ball is a good solid two to one odds, but this week he doesn't yeah, make it. Vegas, the... Vegas odds, LeVar ball is always a favorite, but he gets a pass this week. Yeah, this week he doesn't. He's actually, get... been good this week, I think. <laughs> I don't mind that. Either way, uh, Thank you for listening to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 20. Once again, I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the talking beard, Jose Rivera. And we both have the Vikings playing the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. 
as that's two teams we expect to come out of the AFC and NFC Championship games as well. As episode 21, we'll look to be doing next week, we'll be talking about the NBA, what to make a lot of the NBA All-Star game, as well as the Cleveland Cavaliers and a bunch of other stuff with the NBA. We're going to hold off on our Super Bowl pick and not post it for the 21st, but for the 22nd episode when we get closer to the Super Bowl. So you'll have to hang with us a little bit longer before we give our Super Bowl picks as well. But nonetheless, enjoy the AFC and NFC Conference Championship games. And as always, thank you for listening to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, Episode 20. Using an overpriced trash bag? Pricey, pricey, pricey! A bag that breaks? Whippy, whippy, whippy! Or a smelly bag? Stinky, stinky, stinky! You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, Hefty, Hefty! It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy! Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, Hefty, Hefty!